You're listening to a classic business podcast as heard on Classic 1027. 1027. It's Friday, that means time for your view from the C-suite here on Classic Business, bringing you closer to the country's business leaders and just really to find out what makes them tick, what keeps them up at night and keeps them going in this brutally tough environment in the aftermath of the COVID economic depression that we find ourselves in. My next guest is now arguably the most senior and powerful woman in finance after the resignation of Maria Ramos as the CEO of ABSA. She started her career at Momentum in the early 90s all the way until the dot-com bubble. She was responsible for sales and marketing for the group and Momentum Administration Services. She's also filled executive level positions at Stanlib at Old Mutual before joining Alan Gray in 2009. All the big names there and then completed the circle when she was appointed Deputy CEO of Momentum Metropolitan, which is previously MMI, uh, back in March of 2018, which seems like a lifetime ago. Jeanette Murray, welcome to The View. Hello, Michael. Thank you very much. Now, you're a a number cruncher by training. You're an actuary by training. But I think anyone who knows you will know that staring at spreadsheets all day is just not your personality. Tell me a little bit more about your early life and how that influenced your passion for numbers and then business. Michael, thank you. I started at Momentum as an actuarial student. I actually never qualified, you know, and often when you get job interviews and people ask you about your greatest disappointment, you know, that you had to overcome, then I would always say, look, it's the one time that I gave up on something. And I I gave up on, on you know, having to study and work and, and, and being an actuary because I just realized that, you know, if, if you know me or my personality, I needed people a lot more than I needed the numbers. So what's great about it is that I, I came halfway, so I, I completed, you know, some of the, or, you know, half of the original or the, the initial subject, and then just realized that, you know, for me, it needed people, I needed to, to, to be in touch and, and, and be in a position where the product that we develop, I was in actuarial product development, lacked, I think, and, you know, this was almost 30 years ago, lacked that kind of understanding of the real needs of people. And, and that's really where I found what for me then became a fascinating career, having the ability to hear the real needs of clients and advisors and translating that into something, you know, that the real actors could build in their spreadsheets and so forth. So that's really where, you know, and how my career started and, and taken off. And it started in, in the 90s uh, and at Momentum, as I said in my introduction, until 1999. You then um, left to uh, fill positions uh, elsewhere at Stanham at Old Mutual before joining Alan Gray as well. Why did you decide at that time that the time was right to um, leave Momentum? Yeah, you know, it's interesting when you, when you look back. Um, I think I'm one of those very fortunate people that maybe it's a bit of my, my personality and my, my attitude to life too is I have very little regrets about, you know, decisions I've made in my life, and, you know, this specifically includes my, my career decisions. But at the time, um, I was part of a small startup team for people who had the opportunity to start the first investment platform. Today, we know them as, as List or Link Investment Platforms in South Africa. It was the first one that was backed by a life insurance company. Completely new way of thinking for a life insurer, you know, that had to go from non-transparent product to transparency and upfront commission to ongoing commission. It was a fascinating, you know, in fact, Michael, you know, when we started this, there were 36 unit trust funds in South Africa. 
when I designed our application <laughs> form, I could type them all out, the names. I could name the funds <laughs> on our application form. Today, there are, I mean, we know these, like, what is it now? Around about 3,000 funds in South Africa. Yep. <laughs> anyway, that's not your question. Your question was, why did I leave at the time? Um, look, actually, two reasons. Um, the, the one company that you haven't mentioned, PSG at that point in time was a tiny, small company, basically the investment group that Yanni Maton was running. But in Cape Town, they, they, they started a small investment retail investment business, and they wanted someone to start their unit trust company and their offshore investment companies for them. And they recruited me. So I, I guess it was a big life change for me, meant to move to Cape Town, and it also means a, a second opportunity to help someone start a company. And in fact, in my time at PSG, and that's before I, I left and, and, and joined Standard, I also had the opportunity to be part of the, the, the birth of what we now today know is known, knows one of the best um, uh, um, advice companies in South Africa being um, PSG Consult. So that's kind of how the journey started. And I guess I was young. I was at Momentum 10 years, and it just felt like I was offered, you know, a wonderful opportunity mm. to, yeah, to, to, I guess, start up something pretty much on my own. You know, there were only a few people at PSG. And, and I, I also, I just really liked what they stood for and, and the opportunity that it offered me. There's certainly a golden thread in your story, and that is you like to build things. You like to create things from the ground up. Would you say uh, you are a, a natural builder and creator? There are some managers who love processes and systems and others who, who like building things. Yeah, I, I love the challenge, I think in a way, of a clean sheet of paper. You know, in a way, when, when you walk in and, and there is nothing... Uh, you have the great privilege of then having no legacy. You know, you, you you could do anything because actually whatever you create is is literally the foundation of that business. And however, I, twice in my career, um, in, at, at Old Mutual as well as now at Momentum, I was actually asked to come and fix things. So I guess it's either a fix it or it's, a, it's, it's, it's you know, start something. And even at Alan Gray, our retail business then when I joined was really, really small. And in a, in, in a way, you know, the foundation was there, but I was asked to really build it out and, you know, uh, grow it and, and try and even get to the number one spot um, in the retail market in South Africa, which we accomplished. So I guess, yeah, I, I guess you're right. Um, I like building teams. I, I, I love seeing the potential in, in people and an opportunity. Um, but fixing is also something that, and I, I guess, you know, over the last two years, Back at, at Momentum and back at Momentum Metropolitan, it's been a, a, a big kind of journey of, of fixing and turning a really big ship around. And, uh, I mean, they don't get much bigger than the 30 billion rand life insurer that is uh, Momentum Metropolitan. Back in 2018, Hilly Mayer picked up the phone and decided he wanted you uh, right next to him to help do that. How did that phone call go? You know, it's, it's fascinating um, because actually Hilly originally appointed me at Momentum when I started my career. You know, he was then already quite senior, and um, I arrived kind of at the doorstep, you know, and, 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 you know, there I was, and I was offered this position way, way back, and he's always been a mentor. So I can say, you know, he and I have always kept in touch um, all through my career that, you know, whenever I, I, I made a change or I was offered something, he was almost the first call that I always made and, and, you know, bounce it off him and so forth. So the two of us, you know, stayed in touch. And 
I think at that point, we were only missing a, a little while just before that, that um, we saw each other and we were actually talking about it and said, oh, you know, if, if we could get our hands on, on turning momentum around again. I think in a way, it was still in our hearts and we saw how things were, you know, not always kind of, you know, going, going really well there. And, and, and then when that phone call came, I mean, firstly, it blew me away because, you know, that, that he thought of me, but even just the thought of us working together again mm-hmm. and taking this group and writing a new chapter um, for us was just an incredible opportunity. What did you analyze and assess as the, the key problems with the group that had seen it lose its way to the extent that it had? Michael, you know, I, mean, I, I guess there were a couple of things, but probably the, the, the biggest. And funnily enough, it was in the end the easiest one to fix. But at the, that point in time, the group adopted a whole new operating structure. They called it a segment structure. Now, in normal words, all it meant was that momentum was, was and, and, and if I say momentum, momentum metropolitan, of course, the entire group sure. used to be known as a, a group with fantastic products and great distribution. Very mm. simple formula. Yeah, strong relationship with your independent advisors was always... with your advisor, always. um, Well in touch with your clients, because if you, you know, if you do well for advisors and for independents and they pick you every single time they write, you know, a policy or investment, then, you know, those relationships are strong. And then strong product, very, very good product house. Simple product, but really, really good product. What we found when we started looking at it was... That this segmentation model basically says that product houses were never allowed to be in touch with advisors, to put it simply. They created this massive big distribution and service hub that stood between product houses and, and the actual end client. But by doing this, it killed the distribution spirit because suddenly distribution people needed to worry about call centers. They created a massive call center that was supposed to service the clients and advisors across nine different products. Now, you bring me the human being, even an actuary, that can mm. know the detail and the processes of nine different products and, and deliver good service. So, in a way, that killed the service spirit. It really, the service was absolutely atrocious when we arrived. Um, and then this model was so complex that no one had accountability. And it's the one thing that we've always believed in. You know, I believe in accountability. You make, keep people accountable. And they have direct line of sight and they're empowered to make decisions. That's when businesses move. But that disappeared because of this very complex model where it was a matrix structure. People reported into matrixes. It was just too complex. What was interesting is that they tried for three years to implement this model. And all it did was people just stopped doing anything. They just fought the system. We came in in March. By July, we unraveled this entire system. We reorganized the business into very strong end-to-end product houses. Uh, there's a life house now. There's an investment house. And you are responsible right through the chain from developing your product to distributing it into the market and your relationships with advisors. We did that within three months. It changed the entire culture and the speed at which this business is, is once again able to respond to market needs and to deal with the market. So actually the biggest one was the far, the, by far the most easiest. I think and, secondly, uh, there was a huge cost management we also needed to bring in. 
Mm. The business lost a little bit of its, of its, you know, cost-centric culture or it's just focus on how much things were costing. There was some investments made in startup businesses and so forth that really just we realized, you know, we needed to close them down, get it out of the system. And yeah, I mean, those were really the, it sounds very simple. I guess it was a bit more complex than that. <laughs> but it's been great fun. It's been great fun. Yeah, and it's something that, as you said earlier and alluded to earlier, is in your DNA to, to come in and, and to roll up your sleeves and to and to fix things. It's also meant for you quite a commute, hasn't it? Because when you uh, took that position at PSG, uh, you moved down to Cape Town, didn't you? Do you, do you now yeah. still commute then from Cape Town to Centurion? <laughs> yeah, that's right, you know. And um, in my second year that, you know, in Cape Town, I, I met my, my husband, and um, Johan is an absolute, he grew up on the West Coast, he studied it at, at Stellenbosch, he's a complete Cape Townian. And very early on, he made it very clear and he said, look, you can work wherever you like, but home is here. Can we, can we <laughs> deal with that? Can we live with that? And that's how we, you know, how, that's literally how we live. So, yes, it was a, literally a Sunday night commute to Janusburg just to be there, you know, start your day early and, and fresh on a Monday and then back on Friday evening. And I, you know, that's just how I lived. And suddenly COVID came. And today, you know, I'm deeply thankful. I mean, I, I was given a reprieve of six months. In fact, I'm flying out to Joburg, you know, in, in, in two hours from now. And that will only be my third time back in Johannesburg since March. So it's changed I was, my life completely. I was going to ask you that. So um, the COVID situation, obviously working from home, has uh, showed you that you could probably do a little more from Cape Town. Do, do you think uh, we're going to see more broadly yes. speaking, not, not just from your perspective, yes. but at a corporate level, do you see a, a more hybrid approach to uh, this work from home structure that we've adopted in the future? How do you see COVID-19 uh, shifting the landscape? Oh, definitely. It's definitely changing it for us. Um, you know, if I speak for us as a group, at the moment we're planning for 40% of our people not returning to the office. Um, jobs that actually we've now completely restructured. And, and, and interestingly, a lot of it in your, with your more kind of administrative type personnel, lots of our IT people are way more productive than they've ever been actually working mm. from home and working from home on a permanent basis. So we, we're planning to do it that way. Now, what's interesting is I always had this idea that maybe one one week a month I could work from here. The one problem when you when you have that kind of life in a way is I think you've got to be very careful that you don't stop thinking. You know, it's very easy to just be doing and running from the one meeting to the other. And I often felt I needed just that little bit of a step back, think about things a little bit more rather than just kind of always doing. So I had wonderful technology installed at home, you know, almost two years ago. I never used it because every single time there was a big meeting, you know, the natural thing is, okay, well, I need to be in Joburg. You know, I got myself a, a second home there. So this is, and that just became what I, what I was doing. And now suddenly, I think people have also lost that perception that when you work from home, it's because you want to sleep late and go shopping. I think <laughs> all of us now know that we've worked way harder than ever. And that perception is gone. You know, in a way, we now almost mm. rushing out to see each other again and spend time together because we, we just realized that it's the balance. You know, I think the, the opinions almost swung to the wrong side of now just being in front of a computer screen, you know, 12, 13 hours a day. 
Oh, Janet, I can't tell you how much that resonates with me. It's been my experience um, almost uh, down to the, the last word. The fact that we are now just always on. We're not working from home. I love to say we're living at work, it, it seems. Uh, we are. Sure. And I suppose it's in your DNA, depending on who you are, um, that you, you're going to roll out of bed now and into your office and you just carry on until um, the, the, the early evening, um, 8, 9, 10 o'clock, and uh, there you go. The day's gone again. And I think we do need to be <laughs> mindful, uh, both from a mental health perspective, but also from a creative perspective, that we don't get uh, locked into that routine. Um, just in in your um, eyes as a deputy CEO, um, I'm sure you're highly ambitious uh, and uh, you wouldn't uh, want to tread on Hilly's toes now, uh, but uh, you wouldn't say no if the job was offered to you as a CEO. And second question to that, what do you believe is the most important part of the job of a CEO? What is the most important role? Mm, sure. Not an easy question. So the first one, yes, absolutely. I, I, would, I would be more than privileged to be able to ask, you know, to lead this group. I think it's big shoes to fill. Luckily, you know, Hilly is committed to, to, you know, be around another 18 months to two years. So it's not something that is imminent and there's no pressure right now, but it, it would be a fantastic, wonderful privilege for me. I think it would be the pinnacle of a career to be able to end up where you started you know, having done your round through the industry and to be able to lead an organization like this. So that would be incredible. And secondly, I think, you know, I think one often underestimates how much, I'll call it admin, um, but it's a different kind of admin. You know, I think there's, there's lots of, of interactions with the board, making sure that you keep the board informed about certain things, you know, from a regulatory point of view, there's, there's lots of, of interaction with the regulators and so forth. Hilly and I often, you know, joke a little bit about it, saying, you know, when you lead a business like I do as part of my portfolio, it's, that's almost, you know, that's almost all you do and you're busy with that day and night. When you're a CEO, in a way, you have no portfolio. Your portfolio is just to keep a portfolio of businesses, you know, happy and on the go. And But there's a lot of interaction, you know, I think with the regulators and with the board and so forth, which is a whole different perspective on having a team and managing them hands-on because he has the most senior team in the business and there's a little fear in the direction. So I think that is quite different. And, and I think that's not to be underestimated that, um, you know, someone like me who really likes to roll up my sleeves and get deeply involved in my business, you know, I think that is a quite a different step in your career to then sit back and say, look, now there's a bigger shift, but I don't steer it directly. I steer it through a team and through the direction of the team. I think uh, that's a, a fascinating, different way of looking at it. Um, and one that I think, you know, it takes years to prepare you for that. But, yeah, hopefully if it comes around, you know, I, I, I would be ready for that. That's a fantastic answer to that question. I know Warren Buffett uh, often points to things like capital allocation being uh, right up there in terms of, uh, of key roles. But I think you've summed it up uh, beautifully, Janet, uh, the, the fact that you've got to uh, now almost have this holistic view of all the portfolio of businesses and, and managing the various stakeholders as well. Um, and that's why I certainly don't begrudge um, the remuneration packages that CEOs get. I do think, though, in South Africa, 
we need to have a conversation around um, incentivizing uh, boards and executives properly. I think there may be a little bit of misalignment in terms of uh, growing perhaps revenue or EBITDA and not creating long-term economic value add, as Joel Stern would call it. What do you make of that? Yeah, look, Michael, I mean, I, I absolutely agree. And, and I think, you know, the way in which we also restructured our remuneration of our very senior people to have far more of a, you know, complete downside if, if we don't deliver on certain minimums. And actually, it, it, it kind of goes to zero. You know, the pool goes to zero. I think is a fantastic way in which to align that, that people actually know every single day, every single thing I do, will this add long-term value? Um, I do believe that, you know, often there's, there's too much emphasis on short-term gain and not enough on, you know, steering a ship and creating a business that, that will actually, you know, uh, be sustainable and still be there, you know, for generations to come. So, I totally agree with that. I think I think these, but but then on the other hand, you know, uh, we are put to our we put to our paces from from our shareholders' point of view, from analysts' point of view. I think you know everyone is quite aware of this as an issue, and I know that every time you know we tweak anything or or anything gets done to remuneration policy. There's a lot of scrutiny, and I think that's a good thing. Absolutely. Uh, They say sunlight is the best disinfectant, and we need to see more of that in the public sector as well. As we just zoom out a little bit, and uh, we're obviously having this conversation against a fascinating backdrop in South Africa, the attempt to clean up the state after so many years of looting a uh, depression. uh, Without doubt now, we were in recession before COVID hit, and uh, the, the economy is really on its knees. There's um, discussions aplenty between business and labor and government at Nedlack about how we get things going again. What are your thoughts on where we are as a country right now? Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, we, one is often kind of, you know, try and shy away from, from having a political view on things. But let me put it this way. I think now more than ever, there, there's such a foxhole for for private business and government in South Africa to actually stand together. And, and you know, um, um, whether it's just sharing wisdom, but, but also keeping each other accountable. Because it's, it's, uh, it, private sector also has a lot that, you know, that we can offer and a lot that we often need to fix in order to be able to make a proper contribution to the future of, of, of our country. Um, I, I'm very encouraged by, I think, you know, what's happening recently around corruption and for the first time, it just feels that there's some action. You know, I am an action person. So when it seems that, you know, everything gets together to demonstrate that we're going to root out corruption, that we are in open conversations with each other, that we, you know, stretch out our hands and, you know, take hands and say, how can we fix this together? All of the conversations that, that, that you've just mentioned, you know, I, I sit on one or two of the of the boards of the CISA, which is, is our industry body, and I know how many conversations we are having, um, whether it's with Treasury or whether it's with the Minister of Finance and so forth. I think those are all very encouraging. It feels like some mm. doors have opened and that we, we really recognize how much we need each other on this. And on that issue, just to dwell on it a little longer, and uh, I saw 
uh, Mr. Comfort of Assisa uh, really coming out and unequivocally saying that prescribed assets are not on the table. Is that is that your view that uh, government won't direct pension funds in this country or institutional capital where to invest, uh, but we're having actually the right conversations about how we bring investable, bankable infrastructure projects to market instead? I totally believe that if, if we could get that right, you know, that will be the best outcome not only for all of our pension fund clients in South Africa, but also for the economy and for, I guess, in a way, for everyone's willingness to invest in our country, knowing that, you know, we are responsible about it. So, I I mean, I, we are fully supportive of all of those conversations taking place. But we also realize that if we just sit back and fold our arms and try and fight it off, that's not going to happen. If we can't demonstrate as an industry that we're putting our money where our mouths are, that we are committed you know, to the right investments without being forced to do so, then I think we would not have been able to, to get anywhere on this. So, you know, we are working really hard behind the scenes to open up those conversations, but to also as an industry stand up and make those investments. Otherwise, you know, we might actually be forced to do it in the end. And I just think that that outcome can in the long run not be a good outcome for the economy, not for our clients, not for trust in us as an industry. And certainly, we even just with talks like that, we saw how clients, you know, close to retirement age were taking retirement, taking their money out, taking their money private. And it just shows you how detrimental even those conversations are if clients experience uncertainty. Mm. Mm, no, the, the messaging is absolutely critical. Jeanette, the time has absolutely flown by. I've uh, thoroughly enjoyed uh, chatting to you, sharing a little bit more about uh, your personal story and uh, getting your insights into the industry and uh, where we find ourselves as uh, this great nation of South Africa. Do take care. Michael, thank you so much. That was uh, Jeanette Murray, the Deputy CEO of Momentum Metropolitan, sharing her view from the C-suite.